Hi, this is Haley Beebe, the Carveline Color Admin. Welcome to the Carveline Tech Service Podcast, the go-to industrial coatings podcast. Here are your hosts, Jack Walker and Paula Janus. Hey, Paul. Here we are again with another edition of the Carboline Tech Service Podcast. I want to get a little housekeeping out of the way first. You guys need to go check out the AER podcast. That is uh, Air Equipment and Repair. We were guests on the show this past week. It released August 7th, and we talked a little bit about the Carboline Tech Service Podcast, but then we also talked about some equipment and some of the different Carboline products. Uh, Jason Weber is the host of that. He's a great guy. If you have any equipment needs, you can reach out to Jason at AER Equipment and Repair. They work closely with us. They uh, know a lot of the different equipment that is required for Carboline coatings. Uh, they've been working really closely with our local area rep down in there in San Antonio. You know, Jack, it was a really neat twist to be a guest. Yeah. Instead of the host. <laughs> well, yeah, except for you and I talk a lot. So, I mean, it felt like we were just kind of doing our regular thing. So if you enjoy what we do here, you're definitely going to enjoy what we did there. That's right. The one big difference, though, we didn't have to guide the conversation. Jason did. True. Yeah. Another couple shopkeeping notes. We have a new plan right now. This very second is the last that you're going to hear us talk about Jeff Redfern and the A-Team because we need the element of surprise. That's right. We're not going to talk about it. We've told him everything we're going to do. It's up to him to stop us at this point. Well, and maybe HR and the legal department. We'll see. Right. We have a pretty good in with the legal department, though. We've been on the edge of trouble and we have skirted and walked that fine line. So I think we can handle whatever comes this time. We're on the edge of glory, but I'm hanging on a moment with you. Is that what? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell me you're Metallica. Loving fool got that quote. Oh, yeah. No, I. <laughs> oh, yeah. You have a teenage daughter. I, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have a wide range of music that I listen to. Some of it by choice, some of it not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I have a wife that likes pop music. So that's my excuse. So, anyway, that's enough about Metallica and uh, He Who Not Be Named, which is uh, Jeff Redfern. <laughs> we were talking this week about what we were going to do for the, the show. And you brought up the idea of talking about secondary containment. And, you know, with me being the long-term concrete guy in tech, when I was in tech, I was like, surely we've talked about secondary containment. Like we've done 140 episodes. We haven't done my bread and butter. (laughs) Nope. Apparently not. No. So we're going to talk a little bit about secondary containment. We're going to explain why we do it, why it's important. And then we're going to get a little bit into the different ways that you can do secondary containment. So first, let's talk about why secondary containment is important and why you have to do it. The oversimplification is the government says you have to. That's right. So the EPA has a... I guess a guideline, a guidance, they call it. It's the Spill Prevention, Control, and Countermeasure Guidance for Regional Inspectors. It's Chapter 4. It's sometimes called the SPCC, not to be confused with the SSPC. So you just did it. It's hard. I did. The Peter Piper Pickles. Right. Yeah. So the Spill Prevention, Control, and Countermeasure gives the guidance from a federal EPA standpoint to tell you how, at bare minimum, you should be controlling anything that might spill off into the waterways 
or the sewer systems of your municipalities into the environment. This guideline, and it truly is just a guideline, is designed to be the guidance for the local municipalities. In a lot of the cases, your local restrictions are going to be more severe or more safety related than this federal EPA one is. And they kind of leave that up to your local municipalities to be able to do that. I think the thing that we need to talk about here is there's kind of five characteristics of this regulation. It's an oversimplification. If you guys have ever read a government specification, you know that there are pages and pages and pages of legalese and things like that. Right. So we're going to try and simplify it, make it easy. So the first and most obvious, you are trying to prevent your chemicals from going out into the environment. That's the goal, right? Right. So the number one thing of your secondary containment system is that it must be impervious and free of cracks or gaps. And that's a really important point, because from a carboline standpoint, when we make secondary containment uh, recommendations, that's a very common area that we have to have bigger discussions about. How are you going to treat, whether it be an expansion joint or cold joints in concrete or just natural cracks that happen, whether they're moving or static, how are you going to address those to prevent the whatever liquid is inside it from falling through into the environment? Yeah, and you got pipe penetrations, equipment footholds, all of these things that are inside the containment. Anytime there's a gap, you have to treat it with an elastomer or a flexible. So if you have a pipe coming through that concrete wall, you're not going to go with your rigid system up against it because that could crack right. or cause a gap or you think about control joints, expansion joints, we're going to treat any of these things with an elastomer, a flexible material that will absorb that movement. And that's probably the main reason why we have to honor the control joints and expansion joints within a secondary containment area. To make things even more complicated, that control joint or expansion joint may be subject to the movement of heavy truck or forklift traffic through the area. So, not only do you have the natural expansion and contraction of two slabs of concrete or a pipe penetration of a steel or a PVC pipe going through a concrete wall, now you also have a fully loaded semi that pulls in through the space. And all of those are going to cause us to have to take different routes as to how big does the joint need to be, what kind of material needs to be in it, and what we can do that's resistant to the chemical that's likely to be spilled into it. And we'll probably touch on this a little bit later when we get into the systems and the different ways that you can handle this. But yes, trucks can drive through secondary containment systems. It was always my favorite uh, response working in tech when I was working on a secondary containment recommendation and the caller would call in and one of my first questions would be, is there any vehicular traffic? And the response nine times out of 10 was, dude, it's secondary containment. Right. And it's like, yeah, I get that most of the world out here, you're going down into a uh, sealed off area, but do not underestimate the fact that truck loaning zones uh, with any kind of chemical have to be in a containment area too, because they're high percentage chance for spill in that situation. That's right. So then here's something interesting that I learned. If you notice when you go into these secondary containment areas, a lot of the times they are sloped away from the tank and they are sloped away from the tank because the primary containers can't sit in their own waste. That's part of the EPA regulation. That should be just a general life lesson. Don't sit in your own waste. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, my two-year-old nephew's over here. I know more about that than anybody else right now. Yep. All right. So that that's a quick and easy one. So you, you're going to be dealing with sloping when you're doing these uh, secondary containments. Now, most of the time that's done in the concrete work and not with the coatings. Right. But it is not unheard of to add a sloper pitch to an area uh, with a cementitious coating. Yep. When you're adding that sloper pitch, that really leads us into the next category of how big does your containment area need to be? And this really falls into the local regulations and restrictions. Some of the more common ones are you'll see numbers like 100% of the container volume. Sometimes you'll see 100% of the largest single container or 10% of the total, whichever is greater. And kind of one of the examples that you see a lot is if you have two 55-gallon drums, your containment will either need to hold 55 gallons for the contents of one drum or 11 gallons, the 10% volume of the two drums. And that's going to be dependent on your local restrictions. It's going to be different everywhere. It goes to whichever one's bigger, right? So the Right, but it, that guidance as to which one... How are they following it? Is it 100% of the total volume or 100% of the single biggest container volume? And then you have further municipalities, which will actually throw in, you need to be at 110% yeah. because you need to be able to accommodate any rainfall or precipitation that may be in the area. Or in a lot of cases, as rain falls or as you have small leaks or spills, sometimes your sump areas will actually fill up and that volume is frequently taken into account for this is our total volume that we needed. But if your sump volume is now used up with rainwater, there's no longer room to hold that 100% or 110% volume that you had calculated previously. So it's important to make sure that your sumps and your drains are always kept clean and clear as they were designed. Well, that's the next part too, is that number four is that you have to account for rain in your volume calculation when you're designing the secondary containment area. Basically, what you would do is you would look at the 100-year fall and use that. Or what a lot of people do if they have the extra cash is they uh, you'll notice roofs over these containment areas because that is the most efficient way to make sure that you don't have a spill or a leak. Because, yeah, you can account for the 100-year rain, but at the same time, stuff happens. And Mother Nature is a unpredictable beast, and they can drop any number of water at any given point, and you're, you're SOL if you haven't accounted for it. Heck, I mean, it could drop three, four, five inches of rain in just a couple of hours. Yeah, we experienced, we experienced that, that in week. St. Louis this weekend. Yep. <laughs> and then the last note would be, and this is also goes into the Captain Obvious category, but any waste that is spilled or leaked into the containment area has a, a limited amount of time that it is allowed to be in there. And that is uh, typically 72 hours. It could vary based on local regulations. But the general idea is you need to clean it up as soon as possible. That doesn't mean wait till 70 hours of 72. The only reason that they give the 72 hour uh, leeway is because of the weekend. That's right. It's to accommodate if something happens on Friday night or Saturday morning and you maybe only have a skeleton crew, it may not be able to be cleaned. You still are expected to do your best to mitigate the leak mm -hmm. to, you know, stop producing the problem. Yep. But the actual process of cleaning it up may take a couple of days to get the right crew in. 
to be able to safely clean up and dispose of of whatever it was that leaked. Exactly. So if you look at those five categories, that gives you kind of a nuts and bolts of what we're trying to achieve when we design a secondary containment area. All right, guys, I want to talk to you about Phenoline Tank Shield. This lining is designed for the internals of tanks, valves, and pipes. It is good in a wide range of chemical commodities. It's good for potable water. It's good for fuels, oils, all of those services. It is incredibly great for. You get plural component performance out of a single leg product that's huge, and it doesn't have any solvent in it. So that's the Phenoline Tank Shield, guys. You definitely need to check it out. So now where does that come into with coatings. I think we really, we ended at a good spot there because if you're going to have whatever chemical is inside your containment space that might be eligible to be in contact with your coating system for up to 72 hours, that means you've got to have a pretty robust and resilient coating system. Yeah. We typically handle these in a couple ways, just like a tank lining recommendation, we're going to base our recommendation off of the chemical that's being stored and temperatures. And the reason why that's important is if you have a big tank with an aggressive chemical and it leaks out in your secondary containment system, if your coating isn't resistant to that chemical, then the chemical will eat through that coating and begin to leak out into the environment. It's why it's important when we deal with our control joints with those elastomers that they have the same chemical resistance as well as your original coating. Right, because, I mean, along with the environmental impact of having a leak that gets outside of your containment, having a leak that penetrates your containment system now has caused you to have to mitigate, whether it be the concrete or the soil around it, now you have to deal with this much more severe response and cleaning system to decontaminate a zone because, I mean, quite honestly, it's pretty easy to decontaminate the paint system. And so they can get in, they can clean it. It's usually resistant to the detergents, the neutralizers, and everything goes pretty well. But if the concrete gets contaminated and it penetrates into the concrete, now you have concrete removal and repair mm -hmm. systems that you have to go through. It's a much more severe and much more expensive process to go through than doing just repairs and cleanups on a coating system. Sure. We're going to kind of keep going at the 10,000 foot view. I, I feel like relatively over the year, we're going to keep coming back to secondary containment because there's some things that we can talk about specifically, but I kind of want to talk about the three different coating systems generically. So we're not going to get mm -hmm. into the, the chemical resistance and, and the types of coatings. I just kind of want to talk about how we assemble the different chemical resistant coatings. So know that we're going to change from epoxies to Novolax to vinyl esters based on the chemical resistance that we need. And we're going to use a resin of this technology, uh, sometimes even a urethane, right, to create these systems. Now, what we're going to do is the first most basic, if you're dealing in a, in a light industrial area, you don't have a very aggressive chemical. It's not a heavy work in area you can go with what we call a neat coating. And then that would be just putting down a, a coat or two of a coating that will handle what you need, but you're really just kind of doing the bare minimum at this point. This is uh, down and dirty, light, light work. Right. We'll see the neat coat system very frequently. There's a lot of containment systems which are made for small volumes. It's a small tank or a drum and they're portable systems. They're usually made out of some sort of carbon steel, and there's not a lot of space around it. So you don't have vehicle traffic. You don't have forklifts. You don't have even much foot traffic on them. They are to contain a drum's worth of material or maybe a 100-gallon tank, small space. And so 
a neat coat, which is just a resistant lining option, works really well in those scenarios because it doesn't have to put up to a lot of abrasion resistance and everything being of a similar material. You don't typically have penetrations that you're worried about. You don't have a lot of expansion joints that you typically worry about. So neat coat systems work well in those scenarios. Yeah. And you usually don't have a lot of work in the area. It's very minimal use areas for storage, uh, smaller, those kind of things. And, and a lot of times that's just handled with an epoxy Yep, anywhere from a uh, 50% solids on up. Now, I know it's 2020. There aren't a lot of 50% solids running around out there, but you know what I mean. Yep. The next step up would be to add an aggregate broadcast or reinforcement. You could do that with a broadcast or you can add the aggregate in and kind of make like a trial-like system. There's two major benefits to this aggregate. One, the compressive strength of your coating system goes through the roof at that point. It sure does. Now you have a much tougher, stronger coating. So you're going to have better resistance to mechanical damage. So your impact going to have better thermal shock characteristics. So you're going to have better, you know, impact resistance, abrasion resistance. You're going to have higher strength. And then the one that is overlooked a lot when it comes to the major benefits of this aggregate is the non-slip properties that are introduced to the floor at this point. And why that's important is if you have a spill or a leak, usually somebody has to go in and deal with the spill or leak. That's right. And it's going to be wet. And th when things are wet, like Bon Jovi told us, they're slippery. Slippery when wet. Yes. And so See, that's you, in my wheelhouse. Yeah, that is in your wheelhouse. So then if we go to these containment areas and if you're the guy who has to jump in and maybe there's only like a half inch of whatever in there, you don't want to fall into that half inch of whatever it is. Right. <laughs> so giving those non-slip possibilities really help out. And lastly, because we're, we're running a little late on time is you would add a fabric reinforcement. The fabric reinforcement does two major things. So just like the aggregate. So now you have a fabric reinforcement and the aggregate. So all the things that we talked about with the aggregate still apply to this system. Yep. Now the fabric reinforcement, we usually go to that when we have vehicular traffic. So when you add the extra stress and weight of a forklift or a semi truck, now you need extra assurance that the coating system isn't going to crack under the weight of those vehicles. And that's where that comes in. But it also will help bridge any minor static cracks that may appear later. They're not going to come through your coating system when you have that reinforcement. So you have the extra assurance that you're not going to leak out into the environment when you do that extra mat add. There's a lot of different theories out here. Some, some coating manufacturers require that mat anytime you do secondary containment. We are not one of those because Pawn is guys, they're going to look at every little specific instance that you have in your situation and they're going to help you design the best system for you for all of your parameters and needs. That's right. So when we start to look at it, you know, the thinner the system, the more a crack or a flaw is going to telegraph through. The thicker the system, we're building in a little more robustness, a little bit more flexibility as far as how much can it tolerate before any problems actually show. So it is important to understand the whole system that's going on before we're actually able to make the best recommendation for what it is that you're trying to do. Yeah, and I think 
that pretty much covers it here on the introduction to secondary containment. You know, that's the 10,000 foot view. We give you why it's important and the general philosophies of how we attack it. I think as we go on, we might do one of these pretty frequently about secondary containment. And I think the next step would be to talk about the resins and the materials that we use and why we use them in certain ways and yeah. why sometimes a secondary containment spec can be really challenging because of different chemical resistance of the coatings and placements of tanks that can become a challenge. Absolutely. And a lot of times you get a mixture where they build one great big containment zone, but those chemicals that end up being in there are not compatible with the same resin. So it, it really does pose a challenge. Exactly. So you got the five keys to the secondary containment. It has to be free of cracks. You can't have the primary containers sit in their own waste. The secondary containment capacity has to be either 10% of the total volume or 100% of the volume of the largest container, whichever one's greater. And that's the federal regulation. Your local might be more restrictive. You have to account for rain in that. And then any waste needs to be cleaned up quickly. And then we handle that with either a, a neat system, an aggregate filled system, or an aggregate reinforced system. And that includes the mat in that aggregate reinforced system. With those and the right resins, you can handle any secondary containment that there is on the market. That's right. And for Paul, I'm Jack, and we'll see you next week. And so, for the Carboline Tech Service Podcast, I'm Paul. And I'm Jack. And we'd, we'd like, like to, to thank, thank you for your support. Who put the line in? Carbolene. Who put the line in? Carbolene.